You're listening to The Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio. I'm Professor Kate Floros of the Political Science Department at the University of Illinois at Chicago. October is LGBTQ History Month, so I'm pleased to present my second episode this month of LGBTQ History and Politics. Today, my guest in the classroom is Daniel Williams, a graduate student in the Political Science Department at UIC who studies American politics and urban politics. So let's get started in the politics classroom, recorded on October 17th, 2021. Welcome back to The Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio. You can find more podcasts, blogs, and the live DJ schedule at uicradio.org. I'm Professor Floros, and you can reach me on Twitter at Dr. Floros. Today in the classroom, I'm joined by Daniel Williams, a graduate student in the political science department at UIC. Before pursuing a degree in higher education, Daniel had a career in politics, his last position being the Legislative Coordinator for Equality Texas. He then pursued an associate's degree in government from Houston Community College before receiving a bachelor's degree in political science with a minor in mathematics from Texas Southern University. Daniel Williams, welcome to the Politics Classroom. Thank you, it's a pleasure to be here. I think it's important for students to hear how their professors and TAs chose their careers as the students try to devise their own career plans. So what led you to pursue degrees period and advanced degrees in political science? And why especially does some of your research focus on LGBTQ politics? It's been a long, strange trip to be certain. My, one of the reasons my research focuses on queer politics is the same reason I had the career I did and it's being an out gay man which carries with it certain challenges from society. So when I was 19, I came out to my parents and that did not go well. Oh, and I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> it's a common story. Yes. But because of that, I found myself at 19 without support, trying to find a place to live and find a job and get, get on my feet and figure out what things were going on. That experience led me to get involved in political activism, and in particular to work on issues of creating a safety net for queer youth, Mm. because not everybody who found themselves in that situation was as fortunate as I was to actually be able to find a place to live and a job and to get back on their feet and have connections in the community and do things. Mm. That activism work led to me eventually working in nonprofit administration for an organization called the Dallas Peace Center, okay. whose executive director at the time was a state representative. Okay. When my husband's work took us to Austin and I needed a job in Austin, 
he was hiring legislative staff. And because I had worked for him for several years, he knew I was politically engaged. He hired me to work in, in the Capitol. That was an eye-opening experience for me. I, you know, I came from a background of street activism. I tended to have adopted this idea that politics doesn't care about people like me, that elected officials don't care about people like me. Why bother engaging with the process? Being in the Capitol, having that experience, seeing how hard elected officials and their staffs work to get policy right, even if I disagreed with the end result, but that they were committed to serving the people, were committed to democratic representation, opened my eyes and changed my life. And suddenly I could see electoral politics and the legislative process as a venue to do the kind of work I wanted to do. So after that experience working in the Capitol, I began blogging about the legislative process, trying to educate my activist community about how the process works, how they could get involved with the process and affect the outcomes. That work blogging led to work as a freelance journalist. I gained a reputation through blogging as being the person who understood issues in the Texas legislature. Hmm. So then I was getting contacted by media outlets saying, there's this bill. Nobody understands what it does. You seem to understand what's going on. Can you write about this for us? Nice. That work as a freelance journalist eventually led to Quality Texas contacting me and asking me to come on and run their legislative program, which is how I became legislative coordinator there. And so as legislative coordinator, I helped develop their legislative agenda. I was the point person speaking directly with lawmakers and their staff. I was working to bring people in the community into the Capitol, encouraging them to talk to their lawmakers, educating them on how to do that effectively. Mm -hmm. uh, the One of the big challenges there, people have a tendency to think throwing a bunch of facts and figures at lawmakers is the best way to educate them. Hmm. It's not. Mm. And I would always tell them, the numbers, I can give them the numbers. I've got the numbers. The thing that I can't do that you can is to tell the people making decisions how their decisions affect you. Right. Your personal experience is going to be far more influential as a lawmaker than whatever stats and figures I can pull up and give them. So that's what I need from you here. Tell your story. And that's that's a very challenging thing to ask people to do because it requires being vulnerable. Mm. Giving someone statistics doesn't make you vulnerable in front of power. Right. Saying to power, your actions harm me. Mm -hmm. That's difficult. You are asking people to put themselves in a very traumatic place, potentially. That was one of the biggest challenges there is, is finding ways to do that necessary work in ways that did not harm people and also provided support. When I know when we were working in Houston on the equal rights ordinance there, we wound up getting social workers and having social workers available to our volunteers who were testifying before city council because people were leaving in tears. Oh, no. People were going yeah. and speaking for three minutes and just breaking down because of the trauma of it. Speaking of the trauma, I did that for several years and I got to the point where I was waking up angry every single mm. morning, just waking up ready to deck someone and took a look around and said, okay, I'm, I'm 37. If I keep this up, I'm going to have a heart attack before I'm 40. I can't, I cannot <laughs> keep doing this. 
it takes something special to do that kind of work. And not everybody has it. I don't. And it takes a toll on the people who do have it. So and I, I, I'm very proud of the work I did sure. during my tenure. Every bill we tried to kill, we did. Um, oh, nice. Every okay. bill we opposed, we were able to keep from passing. But when you're playing defense all the time and you mm. never get a win that things didn't get worse, that's a win. That doesn't feed your soul the way you need it to. Fair. Yes. So I took a look around. I said, okay, what, what parts of this do I still enjoy? Well, I love research. I, I love getting into some sticky issue and understanding it better than anyone else can understand it. And then going and explaining how that works to somebody else succinctly and effectively. And I love working with students. I always had interns and fellows. I fought really hard to get paid fellowships nice. for um, students in my department. I would have those phone calls at the end of the semester every semester from students whose professors told them they had to interview someone for this paper mm. those were always fun yeah thank you to all the political science professors out there who, who tell your undergrads to interview someone so who who gets to do research and work with students college professors okay what do i need to do to become a college professor i need to get a phd well what do i need to do to get a phd I should probably get a bachelor's <laughs> because I had been operating this entire time without any kind of formal education right. because of my background being 19 and not having an opportunity. Sure. But then working in this sphere where the assumption, I'm sure most of the people I was working with at the Capitol assumed I at least had a bachelor's degree. Right. Certain, right. Yeah. So decision was made to go back to school. I enrolled at Houston Community College because I really wasn't certain if I could do school and didn't want to rack up a bunch of debt trying to figure that one out. Fair. And community colleges are incredibly important. They provide opportunities to people that society doesn't think about being the people who go to college, like the 37-year-old starting life again and, and trying to pursue a new career like the first generation college student, they're incredibly important. And I think a lot of times in academia, community colleges and the people who work there and the people who teach there get short shrift sure. from yeah. the world of academia. We don't mm -hmm. give them enough credit. Our first lady, Dr. Jill Biden, is a community college professor and very proud of that fact. Yeah. So I got my associate's degree in one year and looked around to decide where I wanted to pursue my bachelor's. And, you know, living in Houston, there's several private institutions, there's several public institutions, thinking about what I wanted out of my education and what my resources were, kind of narrowed it down to University of Houston, which is a very large state school, similar to UIC, historically a commuter college, which does have more of a residential program these days, highly ranked, so, you know, tier one university, very big, and Texas Southern University. Now, Texas Southern University is a historically Black university, HBCU, in Houston. It was founded during the Jim Crow era when mm -hmm. a Black law school applicant to the University of Texas was rejected because of their race Sure. and sued the state. The state lost under separate but equal because there was no Black law school. And rather than integrate UT law, the state solution was to create an entire new college and attach a law school to it. Okay. That's how committed the state of Texas was to segregation. Yeah. They would rather create a new school than integrate UT law. 
So I, I know your your listeners can't see me, but they should know that I am the whitest white boy who ever did white. Okay. So the question <laughs> becomes, what's this white boy looking at an HBCU for? And for me, I'm interested in how people that the structures of our society, and in particular, the structures of our politics, navigate systems that were not designed for them. And that includes queer people, and that includes people of color, mm -hmm. and disabled people, and indigenous people, and all of these different communities that are trying to have their voices heard in political systems that were not designed to have their voices heard. So I decided to go to TSU. I decided to be in that environment where the context of political conversation is how marginalized communities can be heard. You can tell a lot about a university based on how it names its buildings and how oh. it names its colleges. Right. So that law school the state of Texas created in order to avoid integrating, that's the Thurgood Marshall's School of Law. Nice. My college was the Barbara Jordan Nikki Leland School of Public Affairs. And if you're not familiar with Barbara Jordan, she was the first Black woman to serve in Congress. She led the impeachment hearings against President Nixon. Nice. Phenomenal, phenomenal person. Our humanities building is named after Dr. King. Compare that to UIC for a moment and ask yourself who those buildings are named after. I don't know who any of those people are. Other than Mayor Daly, right? The library. Oh, right. Oh, gosh, um, yeah. <laughs> so you can tell a lot about an institution and its values based on, on who it decides to honor with naming. It was a phenomenal experience. You know, TSU is the second largest HBCU in the country after Howard. Okay. But it's still a small school. It's a small state school that really has that feel of community. And I, as a student, felt like everyone from the people cleaning the classrooms to the dean was rooting for me to succeed in nice. a way that was really phenomenal, very supportive. At Texas Southern, was there a queer affinity group or, you know? There was. I was not very engaged with it. Being a non-traditional student, you have a different experience sure. on campus than someone who's coming in 18, 19 and, and experiencing college. You know, they don't want that middle-aged guy hanging out in their queer affinity group. But okay. absolutely, there, there was. There was an uh, office in the university that was dedicated to serving queer students similar to our Gender and Sexuality Center here at UIC. There was a lot of support on campus and a lot of support within the department. You know, when I say, hey, I've got this research I've done on sodomy law in post-colonial states, and can you give me some money so I can go present it at a conference? Absolutely, that would be great. We're so proud of you. Good work. Oh, I'm a little uncomfortable, but <laughs> go for it. There a lot of support on campus. I went in to talk to the dean once and there was a long time gay activist in Houston named Ray Hill, uh, who actually has a couple of Supreme Court cases named after him, who I went in to talk to the dean and I was telling him about my research and he said, you know, I know Ray Hill. Like that wasn't part of the conversation, but <laughs> right, like, right. it's kind of like I have a black friend. I have, thing. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I know that one gay guy in town, but he was trying, he was trying so hard to be supportive. It was fabulous. Is that something that not being surprised about things or like knowing that the bad behavior is well-intended, that seems like a lot of emotional work and would be exhausting. You know, knowing that somebody is just going to say the wrong thing. 
Um, Which is why queer spaces are important. And it's why black spaces are important. It's why HBCUs are so incredibly important because that experience you're describing, black folk living in white society have that all the time. Mm -hmm. No matter how well-intentioned white folks are, they're still going to do that sometimes. And so having black institutions like HBCUs, incredibly important. And, and what an honor for me as a white person to be able to study there and to learn the things I did there. At most universities, you're lucky if you get one class on black politics and maybe sure. it's offered like every other year. Mm -hmm. There, I had a class on African-American politics. I had a class on the politics of Africa. I had a class on the politics of the African diaspora. I had a class on black political theory to be able to have that kind of in-depth study. And these are scholars, these are theories and ideas that I cite in my work now, mm -hmm. not doing research on black politics, but because these academics are brilliant and deserve to be incorporated into the body of literature in not just political science, but every discipline. And they do not get the credit that they're due. And so were the vast majority of your professors also Black? Oh, absolutely. I think I had one, non, no, two non-Black professors the entire time I was there, and they were both people of color. Nice. Okay. So, you know, graduated from TSU and looked around trying to find a program and my husband and I had always been interested in living in Chicago and looking at UIC's history of engagement in urban politics and mm -hmm. cities and how to move the voice of the people into the actions of government to connect public policy preferences to policy outcomes. UIC's strength in that area made it a very attractive place. So that's, that's why I'm here. And so I'm here studying American politics primarily with a focus in interest groups and in particular how marginalized communities navigate those political institutions. So one more question about political science before we move on. Do you think the profession of political science is open to hiring folks who study what you study, who, who look primarily at marginalized groups and maybe particularly queer groups? I think it wants to be. Okay. I, there's often a certain amount of discomfort. So as an undergrad, I presented some of my undergraduate research at the Midwest Political Science Association Conference here in Chicago. And my research was on the history of sodomy law as a component of post-colonial legacy in, in post-colonial states. And so I've got my big giant poster up on the wall and you know, sodomy, 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 everywhere all over this poster. And you could clock people walking by, seeing the poster, doing a double take, looking very uncomfortable, and then forcing themselves to look comfortable. <laughs> all they, in the space of about two seconds, right? Did they come and talk to you about your research? A few of them did. A few of them did. I, I don't think we always do a good job of engaging undergrads with their, their research in general. So it's not just the, the ones who talk about sodomy a whole bunch. Uh, <laughs> but, but yes, a few of them did come and talk. But I think there is a discomfort around sexuality in general and then queer sexuality in particular political science as a discipline doesn't exist outside of society. It's not some pure platonic ideal floating out there. 
academics come to this work with their own histories and, and prejudices and what they've learned from being in society. And so there is that moment of, oh, I'm uncomfortable. Maybe I shouldn't be uncomfortable. I'm going to pretend not to be uncomfortable. <laughs> So you would rather them continue to be uncomfortable, but still engage? Is that a better response? I think it's harder to learn if you're pretending to be comfortable when you're not. When you include queer people explicitly in your research, it becomes a queer issue, no matter Mm. what you're researching. And and I'm sure my colleagues who work in other areas of marginalized communities, whether it's ability or race or ethnicity, have the same experience. The norm, the default is straight, white, cis, temporarily abled people. And so that's, if you you do research that's primarily about them, then your research is about your research. Right. But when you start talking about people who don't fall into that default, then your research is about who you're studying. Interesting. I think that's part of the challenge in the discipline. As I mentioned, October is LGBTQ History Month, and I was hoping we could talk a little bit about that. Last week, I spoke with Professor Andrew Flores of American University about the origins of the New York City Pride Parade as a commemoration of the Stonewall Riots in 1969. And the riots and then therefore the parade were in June and people frequently refer to June as Pride Month. So how is LGBTQ History Month different than Pride Month and why is it held in October? LGBT History Month is in October because schools aren't in session in June. Okay, I was wondering if that was it, yeah. Um, October was chosen because National Coming Out Day is an October. Mm-hmm. National Coming Out Day is an October because the 1987 March on Washington was in October. Yeah. But primarily it's there because History Month was developed as a way to get our history into schools mm-hmm. because it was not otherwise being talked about. Sure. And so they needed a month that would be when people were there and able to talk about it. There are mandates at the state level that in Illinois, yes. Okay. So there, and that's very recent policy. Illinois does require the teaching of, I will say queer history. I think the actual legislation is LGBT history in schools, but most states that's not the case. Okay. The, the irony of course is they do teach about queer people in schools. They just fail to mention that part. That they're queer. Right. So <laughs> you might learn about Jane Addams in schools but you're not going to learn about her relationship with women. You might read Walt Whitman, but you won't learn about who Walt Whitman was. And that becomes a challenge because people don't have role models and people don't have a way of seeing themselves as part of the American experience, part of the unfolding of human life. It's isolating and it's lonely. So that's a beautiful thing to, if you aren't explicit about it, it's not there. Okay, let's take a quick break. I'm Professor Floros, and you're listening to The Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio.
Welcome back to The Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio. I'm Professor Floros, and you can reach me on Twitter at Dr. Floros. I've been speaking with Daniel Williams, a graduate student in the political science department at UIC. Okay, I want to talk a little bit about some of the legislation that was put in place during the Clinton administration that was basically anti-queer. When Clinton was running, he made a lot of noise about equality for LGBTQ people that the discrimination, you know, needed to end and they should be able to serve in the military and all this stuff. But the legislation that he signed that came out during his administration really had deleterious effects and kind of the opposite of what he said, at least, He wanted. And so the two pieces of legislation I want to talk a little bit about is the Defense Against Marriage Act. The second policy to talk about is don't ask, don't tell. So actually, it's not legislation, which is important, an important distinction to make. Okay, so let's start with don't ask, don't tell. The Code of Military Conduct is set by Congress and for a very long time had had laws prohibiting service by queer people written in. Those got strengthened during the pink scare of the 50s. Because that was created by Congress, only Congress could take it out. Okay. So Clinton had pledged when he was campaigning in 92 to push through a reversal of that policy. He was not successful. He was not able to get that policy taken away by Congress. But as the commander in chief, as the executive, he was able to change how the policy was enforced, which okay. is how we get to don't ask, don't tell. So okay. he puts this policy in place that says, okay, I can't change the code of military conduct because that's Congress, Okay, but you're not allowed to pursue it. Prior to this point, the military was sending like undercover military police into gay bars. No. There were active investigations to try to uncover networks of, in particular, gay men, but also lesbians, in the military. There's a hilarious story. The military police trying to find someone named Dorothy. I think it's probably apocryphal. It comes from the 60s. Dorothy seems to be the ringleader of all these gay men because we keep, whenever we send undercover agents into gay bars, they keep talking about friend of Dorothy. Are you a friend of Dorothy? So we've got to track down this Dorothy because she's created this network of gay men in the military and we can't find Dorothy, which of course, friend of Dorothy is a euphemism for gay men. It's a reference to Judy Garland who played Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. But yeah, the military was actively trying to root out queer people. And so Don't Ask, Don't Tell was changing the way that policy was enforced. And so no longer were those investigators allowed to directly ask if someone was gay. That's the don't ask. And so long as people weren't out, it, it was a policy that forced people to be in the closet. Yeah. But as long as you were a good little gay and stayed in the closet, theoretically, the military was not permitted to exclude you. The reality of how that policy was enforced was very different than how one might have hoped it would work on paper. I think the Clinton administration in 92, remember them coming in after 12 years of Republican domination, mm-hmm. um, not just in the executive, but also throughout the uh, uh, legislative. The 92 sweeps in a Democratic Congress, and uh, I believe the Democrats still had control of the Senate at that point. They came in with a lot of hope. They were thought they were going to get a lot done. Healthcare, for one thing. Mm. 
weren't able to get done nearly as much as they want. But yeah, don't ask, don't tell hurt a lot of people. But you know, we're political scientists, we need to look at how that change in policy came to be and how it was different than what came before it and what happened after it. So during Don't Ask, Don't Tell, were fewer queer people turfed from the military? No, it went up. They actually kicked more people out under Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Now, there are exogenous factors there because the culture around the military was changing rapidly. Mm. More people were out. Their norms around creating queer families and queer relationships were changing So whereas closeted people in the military in the 50s and 60s were being actively investigated by the military police, but weren't living public queer lives outside the military. Okay. You get into the 90s, you get into the aughts. Don't Ask, Don't Tell requires people to be quiet in the military, but then they get a boyfriend and move in with their boyfriend off campus and take their boyfriend to family Christmas and somebody posts the photo on MySpace and... And you've just outed yourself to the military. And you've just outed yourself to the military. So probably the reason, at least my interpretation of the factors I'm seeing here, probably the reason that those exclusions came up, the people getting kicked out of the military went up under Don't Ask, Don't Tell, had to do with society changing around the military. And like a lot of governmental institutions, you know, we talk about bureaucratic friction. These big institutions don't change quickly. No. And they rarely change unless there is some sort of external push for them to change, which is what people were pushing for during this period. And that policy was in place until, I remember it was a, um, it was a lame duck session of Congress. So it right. had to have been in an election year. It was 2010. It was right before all the Tea Party folks came in and the Democrats still had the majority. It was one of the last things that that Democratic majority did with their majority. Now, the group people had to wait until they were done doing everything else first. But yeah, okay. Don't Ask, Don't Tell is, I guess we can't say it's repealed, but the part of the military code of justice that... Right. They changed the military code of justice so that that need for a policy about how the military code of justice is going to be enforced was no longer in place. So that's why Congress had to act. As an addendum to that. So now queer folks can serve openly in the military. Well, we keep going back and forth with our our trans... Right. That's exactly... Whether or not they can serve openly, but... Currently, they can't. Yes. So at the end of the Obama administration, they opened up the policy so that transgender people could serve as their authentic self, which was limited and then cut off completely during the Trump administration and then was reopened under the Biden administration. Do you know what effect that had on transgender folks who were serving as their authentic self, who then, the pol- when the policy changed back to, no, you can't? Are there I, any I'm stories or any... anecdotes about... I, I have heard anecdotal stories. I'm not aware of anyone having the data on that. No. Data is such a huge challenge when, you're, when you study queer issues. It's not collected by a lot of the sources that we tend to go through. The U.S. Census does not have a question about sexuality or gender identity and expression. The American National Election Survey, ANES, which we rely on heavily in political science to measure political opinions and attitudes in the U.S., 
didn't have a question until 2008. Oh, wow. Okay. So I can't go back and look at what did queer people in the 90s think about politics because nobody bothered to write it down. Mm. And with trans issues, it gets even harder. I TA'd an undergrad class on public policy last semester and I ran the lab and we were actually using ANES data and analyzing it as undergrads. So in the grand tradition of all statistics class, we, sure. we start our first day looking at the gender variable. This is pretty standard and it's usually coded as a binary variable. Everyone right. in the data set is coded as either male or female. And one of the things I was really trying to teach them is understanding the limitations of your data, okay. the limitations of how you code it, and the limitations of where we get it. So I had them go into the ANES. I had them go into the question and look at what the actual responses were. And so there's, I think, 4,700 respondents to this survey, something of that nature. And of those, 63 refused to answer the gender question. Okay. And so I asked them, what do we do when we're coding with those 63 people? When we're looking at these statistics about political opinions and we've divided the gender variable into this binary male, female, what happens to those 63 people in our sample? Can you look through our code and see what happens to their political opinions in the entire rest of our analysis. Let me guess, they're dropped. They're dropped. We throw them out. Well, what do we know about those 63 people? Can we make any guesses about their gender based on that refusal? No, we really can't. We don't know why they refuse. Maybe they're super conservative and don't think anyone should ever be asked about gender. Maybe they're trans. Maybe they're just contrarian and like saying, no, I won't answer things. We don't know. So how does that limit what we understand what this question is telling us? And that's a big deal. By the way, 63, that's a out of 4,700, that's about the percentage of the population that's estimated to be transgender. Oh, wow. Okay. It's pretty much dead on, but we don't actually know that. We right. can't because yeah. of the way the question is answered, asked. And so that's part of the, our limitations as political scientists is the assumptions that get built into how we collect data and the data that we're mm -hmm. using limit the conclusions that we can draw from it. And it's important to understand that. And it's important to teach our students to ask those questions when they're reading papers. You know, when you open your textbook and it's talking about the gender gap. Mm what's getting left out. And so do you think that the census should ask about sexuality and gender identity and expression? Absolutely. It was supposed to. It was, really? it, it was originally planned. The Obama administration had included it in the 2020 census and the Trump administration pulled it at the last moment. No, they did not. Yeah. And so what we use instead, what gets used in a lot of queer research now is same-sex couples because that shows up in the census data. If you've got two people who are coded as the same gender, who are coded as married, mm. that shows up in the data. And that becomes a proxy in a lot of studies for the distribution of the queer population. But that's so problematic for so many reasons. Exactly. And I, I've heard the claim multiple times from people that, well, there's there's more gay people in the American South than the rest of the country. That claim is coming from that census data. There are more same-sex couples in the census data oh. in the South than in the rest of the country. So what are the factors that might lead to that other than a larger population? Well, a greater cultural value on marriage, yeah. the one thing, which it absolutely exists in the South, a norm of 
coupling up in a marriage or marriage-like institution strongly enforced in that region. It's difficult to use, but you, you see it as a proxy in study after study after study because we don't have any better data. Mm-hmm. And until someone asks, that's the best data we're going to get. And like I said, even the ANES didn't ask until 2008. And it's under it's underpowered at that point because they're you know, somewhere between three and 10% of the population is uh, LGBTQ plus. And so even with almost 5,000 respondents, that's still pretty underpowered if you're trying to draw conclusions about mm-hmm. multiple variables mm-hmm. within. So you might be able to interpret political opinions, but if you want to see how that interacts with race, if you want to see how that interacts with region, you really don't have enough power there to do much with. Because the, the N is just too small. The N is just too small and your degrees of freedom are too high. Yeah. So there's not good data. And we wind up in this research using a lot of proxy data, and yeah. a lot of estimations. So should every data collection effort, whether it's the census, whether it's social security forms, whether it's, I don't even know if they ask on health forms, uh, nope. Should all of those then include questions on sexuality and gender expression and identity? Well, I'm biased because it would make my research easier. Right. Okay. I guess I'm wondering, is that something that you think people want to be asked to report on a whole range of things? Well, let me ask you this. Okay. What do we lose when we don't have that information? Oh, we lose a lot of stuff. I'm wondering if there might be a fear of basically outing yourself to like the bank and whether that might lead to discriminatory treatment or whatever. So like if I went to apply for a loan, I'm a woman, but if I went to apply for a loan as a lesbian, would that be different? And so, I mean, I don't We know. have systems in place to handle this sort of thing. So okay. you know, I, I'm assuming a lot of your listeners are probably undergraduates here at UIC. You filled out your application and the last page of the application was demographic information. Mm-hmm. If you looked at the bottom of that form, you would see that this is just for record keeping. It gets stored in a different place than the rest of your applica- application. We separate these out so that your information on race and gender doesn't get included in the consideration of your application. We've got systems for handling this. Mm-hmm. We collect information on attributes that experience cultural bias, like race, like gender, like ability, all the time. Mm-hmm. We got this. That's okay. not a good reason not to collect the data. Okay. Okay. I do think there probably the data would be less reliable than some of those other issues because of self-reporting. There might be more variation in the self-reporting because of that cultural stigma that you're talking about. You know, one of the big challenges is most queer people are not raised in queer households. There are a few, the lucky few, mm-hmm. but most queer people are habituated to straight culture. That's where we're raised. Mm-hmm. Um, it's what our, our friends over in the sociology department call a habitus. It's the practices of life, the scripts, the rules that you learn and then practice without even thinking about them. Things like moving to the right when you're walking down the hall and there's someone walking towards you or saying, bless you when you sneeze, or I, I may be being very Southern here with that example. No, I think most people still say that. Queer 
culture is almost always learned as an adult. That queer habitus is acquired as an adult through interaction with other queer adults. That becomes the challenge with identity and those self-identity. So if we're collecting data, if we're asking people, what's your sexuality on a form, the point at which their self-concept as a queer person is sufficiently developed and sufficiently proud to be able to check that box, that's going to come at different times. So I think we probably would have less reliable data than we do for things like race and gender if we were collecting this data. Although there's all kinds of problems with that as well. There's all kinds of problems (laughs) with that. And people have made careers out of studying the variation on uh, the racial identity over time and the factors that affect it. So certainly that's not fixed either. But without collecting the data, what we miss is disparate impact. We can theorize and support some arguments about higher rates of homelessness, about Mm. lower health outcomes, about housing discrimination, about migration. But without the data, it's hard to support them. And if we don't know about disparate impact, we can't construct policy to combat it. And that's what you lose when you don't collect the data. What would be the solution to that? Should there be some kind of mandate from the government that everybody who collects demographic data should include this, this, and this? Should it be call up your bank and insist that they include gender identity and sexuality on their form? How do we fix this? We collect the data where we collect other similar demographic data. But I mean, we don't create the oh, how, it how, implements. How yeah. do we construct policy to yeah. cause the data to be sort of created? That's an interesting question. Um, and there are institutions that are starting to try to collect this data, but until it's collected broadly, mm-hmm. it's limited in its utility. I think it's going to have to be federal policy. Okay. Um, so we're probably looking at some sort of coercive vertical diffusion down from the federal government to other institutions, maybe tied to education funding or highway funding or something of that nature. I haven't spent any time constructing this policy and there's probably sure. someone out there who has. Right. <laughs> um, but it's but it's definitely something that can be done. Yeah. OK. We mentioned the Defense Against Marriage Act. So the Defense of Marriage Act passed during the Clinton administration. It had three sections. Section one was just saying the short title of this act is the Defense of Marriage Act. Section two said that states did not need to recognize marriages that occurred in other states. And section three defined marriage for the purpose of the federal government as between one man and one woman. And let's talk about how weird section two is. What a bizarre situation that creates. Okay. When you've got a contract that a state can just ignore. Yeah. Can you imagine if that was the case for anything else? No. You know, when you buy a car, you sign a contract that moves the title over. Can you imagine driving across state lines and the new state you're in goes, oh, no, we don't recognize that contract. That ain't your car. What chaos. When you start allowing states to ignore contracts willy-nilly that way. And indeed, what was created was chaos. But Section 2 and Section 3 were in effect for 20-some years before the Supreme Court struck them down. So the first to be struck down was Section 3 in June of 2013. Uh, That was the Windsor case, which then having overturned Section 3, the federal government had to give federal benefits 
to same-sex couples. So for example, if you were in the military and you were married and they died, then you would get, the federal government would give you spousal benefits. And um, not just benefits, because remember, we're also talking about tax law. And it, oh, okay, it, right. taxes were the root of Edith Windsor's case as well. She was a widow and was battling for the recognition of her marriage from Canada um, in order to receive a more favorable tax settlement. Oh, right. Because if you're married, you don't have to pay taxes. If you're not related in any way, it's huge. And then two years later, Section 2 was struck down. Obergefell was 2014. That was 2015, June 26, 2015. My bad. It's my wedding anniversary. Oh, oh, you got married the day it was overturned? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Oh, congratulations. Yeah. Uh, Windsor, Obergefell, Lawrence are all June 26. Do they do, do they do that on purpose? I think they did for Obergefell because by that point it was a trend, but that's also the courts last week is usually the last week in June and the big cases tend to be yeah. announced so it just kind of I think the first couple were coincidence and then by the time a virtual came along they were okay. like, no no we gotta okay. keep it in okay Windsor struck down the one man, one woman for federal purposes and Obergefell, which was states can no longer refuse to accept a marriage that happened in another state. Mm -hmm. So if somebody was married in a state that allowed same-sex marriage and then moved to a state that did not recognize that marriage, they could, they could get federal benefits after Windsor but their, their marriage wasn't acknowledged by the state? Or was it only people living in states that acknowledge same-sex marriage that could get federal benefits? Yes. I, that was two things. Yeah, and both of them were the case. Okay. Is the problem. There was a, a lot of uneven application, a lot of lawsuits going back and forth. People were really having to fight for um, what was happening. I know we had a, a situation in Texas where it was someone in the military at mm. Fort Hood and their commander was denying benefits and, but that's federal government, but the commander was arguing that it's Texas and yeah. your state of residence is Texas. So there was a lot of confusion, um, a lot of uneven application, which just goes to show how untenable the situation right. was. I was raised in the Catholic church. I was later to come around to the idea of marriage for same-sex couples. I was perfectly fine with like civil unions because marriage implies like it, for Catholics is sacramental, right? And so if it's marriage, does that mean that churches have to do it? So I was definitely late to this party. But one thing that I'm continuing to struggle with is the tension between individual rights and religious liberty, because mm -hmm. I think most of the opposition to the legalization of same-sex marriage came from religious communities or people with firmly held religious beliefs, whatever, that that marriage is sacramental and being gay is an abomination against God and, and all these things. And I'm sure that that's what was behind the, you don't have to recognize this contract done in another state. You know, if your people in your state don't 
you know, have this belief. So let's let's look at that religious liberty question. Where is religious liberty found in the Constitution? Amendment one. Amendment one, right? The establishment clause. Mm -hmm. Congress shall make no law regarding the establishment of religion. But wait a minute. Isn't that also saying that the government shall not have a state religion, i.e., that religion should not be a basis on which policy is made? So that's an interesting question. At the time the Bill of Rights was adopted, nine of the 13 colonies had official established state religions. The Establishment Clause, at the time it was passed, did not give individuals any religious liberty. It protected the states from the federal government coming in and establishing a federation-wide religion over their individual state religions. So So the state religions were okay. It was just the federal government can't tell you what that religion is. Right. Congress isn't allowed to tell the states what their official state religions are going to be. But so throughout the latter part of the 18th century and early 19th century in America, there's this movement to disestablish these state religions. Um, The last state to do away with theirs was Massachusetts in 1823. But this really gets kicked off in Virginia when a couple of Baptist ministers get upset because they can't perform marriages. The state will not recognize marriages performed by a religion that's not that official Episcopalian religion. So the Baptists want to be able to perform marriages that will be recognized by the state. They bring their issue to the state assembly. It's James Madison is one of the people who's really pushing this through. And so Virginia is the first state to disestablish and create a state level religious liberty. It's not until the passage of the 14th Amendment that the First Amendment applies to the states and not just the federal government. So when the 14th Amendment passes, that establishment clause now applies to the individual U.S. states, and they are no longer allowed to establish state religions. Now, by the time that had happened, they had all disestablished their official religions. But this is the point where the First Amendment starts applying to individuals, to the relationship between individuals and both state and federal government as opposed to before the 14th Amendment, it's just about the relationship between the states and the federal government. So wait a minute. So if I am, let's say, a Supreme Court justice who claims to be an originalist, then I shouldn't look at the First Amendment as protecting individual liberty because that wasn't what it was expected to be? Well, that's an interesting question. And we can take a look at what the most famous originalist, Justice Scalia, had to say about that. So there's a a case in, I think it's 1990, Halea, where uh, Native Americans who used peyote as part of their religious Mm -hmm. practice Mm -hmm. were fired from a city job because they failed a drug test. Okay. They turned around, they sued the city, it made its way up to the Supreme Court, they argued religious discrimination. And under the case law at the time, called the Lemon Test, in order for the state to have a law that affected the practice of religion, it must be facially neutral, so not about targeting a specific religion, and it must be narrowly constructed to achieve a legitimate state purpose in the smallest way possible. Okay. So their argument was an all-out ban on peyote use, which is a religious practice, was not as narrow as possible. They weren't using peyote on the job. It wasn't affecting their job performance. This was about what they were doing in their private life. 
with their private religious expression. So under the Lemon Test, that really should have been permitted. Scalia writes this opinion that says that claims of religious discrimination shouldn't apply strict scrutiny, shouldn't apply that narrowness test. They should apply a much broader application of the law, which allows the state to create laws that could infringe on religious practice. Now, it's telling that the case that does this is not a religion of the dominant culture, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's a native religion. It's not the Methodist next door. So wait a minute. My brain is getting caught up in language that I don't use regularly. So, so the Lemon Test says that the law has to be, be super specific. neutral. Okay. And as narrowly constructed as possible. So, and by narrow construction, you mean like it only applies in these specific circumstances kind of thing? It should only apply in the circumstances that are absolutely necessary to do the thing the government's trying to do. So okay. in, in the case of Halea, it's we don't want city employees to be on drugs while they're doing their work. Right. Right. So the, the argument that was brought to the court then was that purpose, not having your city employees high on the job. You can do that without banning people from using peyote in their private lives. OK, but Scalia says, no, don't be ridiculous. That's this is getting out of hand. They don't want people using peyote. That's fine. Scalia said that. Scalia says that. And it's because that idea of strict scrutiny. Define what that is for a second, just so I, we know so what we're talking about. Under the law, most laws, you, you do that broader scrutiny level where as long as the law isn't facially discriminatory, if, it, if it's trying to achieve something the government's supposed to be trying to achieve, that's fine. But when a law affects people based on certain categories, race, absolutely, nation of origin, absolutely, religion, absolutely, maybe gender under certain circumstances, that's a weird one. Sexual orientation, we're not really certain. The court's been really unclear there. But for certain attributes, if the the state is passing a law that affects people with those attributes, then we apply this much narrower strict scrutiny, in which case the law must be built as tightly as possible to achieve the goal of the state and no broader. Another case that came before the court during this time period was a city ordinance against animal slaughtering Mm -hmm. that was designed to target Santeria priests who were doing animal sacrifice as part of their, their religious practice. And they were pretty clear that they were trying to stop Santeria priests. And the court struck that down as well. And they said, they said, no, don't apply strict scrutiny. If you don't want animal slaughter, you can, doesn't matter if it affects people practice of religion, you can just go for it. So once those two cases come through and the court gets rid of this idea of strict scrutiny for religious discrimination in the law, Congress freaks out. And so Congress passes a Religious Freedom Restoration Act in 1993, I believe it is. So this oh, is no, that, this is another Clinton. But no, no. And this is what's interesting. The Religious Freedom Restoration Act restored the application of strict scrutiny to cases involving laws that affected religious practice, like in Halea with the peyote use, like the Santeria priests who were slaughtering animals. That was the goal. And that worked out pretty well. And then again, Scalia hates strict scrutiny. So the court struck down the federal 
Religious Freedom Restoration Act, <laughs> I think a couple years later. And this is when states start enacting their own RIFRAs, their own Religious Freedom Restoration Act. But initially, their goal there was to apply strict scrutiny. That was the purpose of these late 90s Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And it's needed. There, here's why it's needed. Uh, one of my favorite court cases is called Piggy Park. <laughs> Piggy Great Park. Name. It's the name of a barbecue joint. It's the okay. name of a barbecue joint who was that was owned by the, I believe it was the president of the like White Preservation Society. Oh, nice. Okay. He was refusing to serve African-Americans. This is after the passage of the Civil Rights Act. He is sued in federal court for religious discrimination, sorry, for, for racial discrimination. Yeah. And argues that his Baptist faith tells him that the mixing of the races is against his religion. That a law that doesn't allow him to segregate within his own business is religiously discriminatory. So this goes to the courts. And the courts say, while this might have an effect on the practice of your religion, the purpose for the law to end racial segregation is a legitimate state interest. And there is no way to construct the law more narrowly than it is. So no, you have to serve Black people, Mr. Piggy Park. In this circumstance or at this time, as long as the state can can show that it has an interest in enforcing the law, your individual religion is immaterial. If strict scrutiny is applied, the law must be constructed as narrowly as possible. So that's what religious freedom is. Okay, but religious that... freedom is the ability to practice your religion up until the point when it starts bumping against legitimate state interests. But that's not what happens anymore, right? So that's what's interesting, uh, because that idea of Religious Freedom Restoration Act, when I said that, there are some of your listeners who just had a chill go down their spine because these things have been weaponized in really nasty ways to allow businesses to deny services, in particular, to queer people. Right, like in the cake case. Oh, let's not talk about the cake case because they can have all the cake they want. Let's talk about medical care. Let's talk about ambulance drivers. Let's talk about people trying to get health care and medical tests who are being turned away. That's what I care about. Sure. Okay. Let them keep their cake. When you start giving people permission to deny care, Mm -hmm. to deny services, Mm -hmm. legal services, Like abortion, as well as all this other stuff. Okay. I mean, can you imagine if the clerk at the UIC admissions office was allowed to just deny admissions to queer people because they're queer and could argue, well, that's my religious beliefs, so nobody can do anything about it. Sadly, we are out of time. I want to thank my guest in the politics classroom, Daniel Williams, a graduate student in the political science department at UIC, for joining me in the classroom today. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you so much for having me. I had a lovely time. You've been listening to The Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio. I'm Professor Floros. That's all I've got for this week. Class dismissed.